Greetings, ladies and mendigants, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space. Ah, uh, before we continue, just two quick things. Uh, one, this week is my dad's birthday. Uh, it's the first time in my life that we won't be in the same country or same place uh, on his birthday. So, uh, to make up for that, I would like you all to uh, go into the comments and use the old man emote, just to show him our support. And the second thing... If you are an author and you want me to read your stuff on my channel, whether that be a series or a one-shot, then just pop me a message on Reddit giving me permission, and I'll add you to the list. No guarantees of when and if I will do it, but at least you'll be part of the list of authors I use for these stories. Anyways, on to the story. A Second Chance, written by Farmwitch4275. My subordinates looked carefully at me as I read reports and data slates. They were hopeful, so was I, to be honest, but uh, the more I read along, the more my hope died. I stopped my reading, looking carefully at my countrymen. Their faces wore an expression of friendliness, hope, and piety. They were looking at me for leadership, answers, anything. I didn't have any. Their expressions changed to fit the mood as I simply laid my head in my hands. General Tombok, normally the most stoic and silent of them all, broke from his honorable vigil by laying his head on his desk and sobbing. Admiral Ulna procured a bottle of bodrot and started drinking. The Secretary of Treasury helped himself to a glass of it before the Master of Agriculture stole the glass and gulped it down before anyone could protest. The scene that played out in front of me was little more than a small-scale version of what was inevitably going to happen across the entire nation. As the room descended into sobbing and madness, I looked over the reports one more time. Crop yields produced barely 30% of what they made last season. We have enough stocks if we ration carefully to last us in next year. Then it's over. At the rate of soil depletion, the next harvest will be the last. Compounding that, the water supply is running low. We have the choice of either watering the crops or feeding the people. We can't do both. Power infrastructure is collapsing with rolling blackouts, meaning that water purifiers and treatment plants can't run long enough to actually do any work. Power generators are now almost out of fuel. We have enough electricity supply to last us maybe a month if and only if we shut down everything except the hospitals and water pumps. Rationing is out of control. Entire families are starving on one meal every two days if they are rich or poor. On some occasions, families have been forced to take in orphans because the parents starved, feeding their kids instead of themselves. No rioting, but that won't last long once supplies are gone. We have six months of food if we only eat once every week, maybe. Then after that, I shook my head, had the implications of continued looking through the data slates. Something, anything, there has to be something we can do. I tried to think of it. I stood from the desk and looked out the window. My face turned to even greater despair when I saw the dead grass, its blue coloration replaced by brown and red. The trees were slowly dying out, even at the height of spring. No flower, no leaves, just browns and greys. I returned to my seat and went right back to despair. I tried to think. The men in front of me began to throw fisticuffs and insults. Blame began to be thrown about and tempers fled. Just then, one of the soldiers marched in, highly irregular. 
but he was agitated. His large eyes were more expressive than usual. He burst into the room and immediately charged towards me, ignoring the usual necessary bows and salutes. He slammed his hands on the table, shaking me from my concentrated despair. Then, in the loudest voice he could muster, he yelled, Millions! Everyone suddenly stopped what they were doing and looked at him, bewildered. He slammed a set of papers on the table. They were a series of images. At first, it was grainy. I could only make out various dots and shapes. The next image showed that they were getting closer. I could see jagged edges, smooth contours, and could approximate sizes. The next image revealed details like insignias and armor plating, cannons, weapons, the soft glow of a shield. I looked up at him. These pictures were taken by the old courier probe that was launched ten years ago. They just passed by Kordos. The Colonial Observatory can see them. I looked at the final picture in the set. There were thousands of them. All of them were heavily armed. Very heavily armed. One of them could take on entire platoons worth of men. And there were thousands. Oh gods, what now? What do we do? As if things weren't bad enough. Admiral Alter said, now focusing less on strangling General Faltax. What is the ETA? How long do we have to prepare? Field Commander Relin asked, taking a look pictures. We have ten minutes before they reach orbit. Uh, probably less, the soldier said. Strange insignia. Brown and green coloration. What a very odd military force. I can see they are heavily armed, but the color scheme seems strange, the Secretary of Agriculture said. That's your concern. The paint job. Look at the size of those cannons. Shut up. I yelled out. The group quickly scrambled back to their seats. I waited until they were all quiet and at full attention. I don't care if the crops fail. I don't care if the waters are worthless. This is my planet, my home, and I will defend it to my last breath. If our last moments on this ball of rock are dying to a hail of plasma fire, then so be it. Ready our defenses! The leaders of our nations gathered their intellect and strength faster than I could imagine and began planning defenses. And sure enough, within a few minutes, panic gripped the world as confirmation appeared above the skies. Within hours, we were underground and secure bunkers in command centers, civilians in their basements saying the last goodbyes and soldiers had mustered to arms. I sat around a board table with the other leaders and we were exchanging ideas as reports started coming in. Any news? Have they landed yet? Several reports of units landing in the polar regions. Scouts report that some ships are walkers, hexapod in design with their large heads. We can't tell if they are armed or not. They look similar to the survey craft, Admiral Saronis said. The larger craft appear to be fully-fledged starships. One has landed in the ocean and has started doing uh, something. Uh, the other five craft have remained in orbit. We have had 600 or so of those hexapod machines and 200 quadrupedal machines starting landing across the planet now. We have reports from the Katani and Gadanti empires too, the Secretary of Defense said next, pointing at locations on the planet's surface. This makes no sense, I said, looking carefully at the intel. This makes no sense from a military standpoint. See? They are forming this strange hexagonal pattern, 200 kilometers apart from each other. What are they doing? Perhaps the military strategy is not needed. Look, 
They are heavily shielded, and look at the guns on that one. They don't need tactics when they have that kind of overwhelming force. Admiral Saronis pointed out several pictures of the more complicated-looking machines. I'm... That may be the case, but look. What is this? I can see three distinct classes of machines. What are they doing? The smaller one seems to be doing some kind of uh, defense unit. The middle-sized one appears to be drilling unit of some kind. The larger ones don't move from that position, and... Uh, what is that thing on its top? Uh, some kind of emitter array? They, they don't look military to me, I asked, pointing out the various anomalies. We are getting some kind of interference in our radio communications. They are definitely interfering with our comms, so uh, that is a military action. The signal is uh, strange, though. It's a series of shorts and long beeps and nothing else. We can filter it out and communicate, but still. The secretary I spoke next, turning his radio filter off so that we could listen this does not make any sense. They've been here for two hours now. Why haven't they attacked? And what is that ship in the ocean doing? My fleet just told me that it went into the trash vortex of the Cranian Ocean. It looks like it's, uh, consuming garbage, Admiral Serona said as he brought up a short video of the ship using its bulk to vacuum up the garbage. We have, uh, reports of more starships entering the system followed by more of those walkers, thousands. They will be in orbit within a few hours, but they are still more of the same. Smaller arm craft escorting medium-sized drilling units, sir. The larger hexapods seem to have either limited or no weaponry. If this is an invasion, it's uh, a bad invasion. The Secretary of Defense pointed out some inconsistencies. Like I said, overwhelming force. They don't need tactics when you have this kind of tech. With this kind of power, maybe it is piss poor strategy, but, uh, do you think they need to care? Admiral Serona spoke up, getting sideways glances from the others. Outside, it was a mixture of order and chaos. Civilians running around, trying to secure their families, while soldiers carefully shepherded them around to try and avoid chaos. The few vehicles that we had still in operation were buzzing around as carefully as possible, so that we could save what little fuel that we had left. The fact the machines were large enough to be seen in the distance was not helping calm everyone down. The machines themselves, apart from the clunking and screeching as they stomped over the ground, were randomly emitting strange electronic screeching noises and loud squeals that echoed over the desert for hundreds of kilometers. The sounds of rocket engines and starship thrusters also rocked the atmosphere, creating even greater panic. Something isn't right here. I spoke over the noise of the command station. Why? Why is their logo a cartoon tree? I pointed towards a close-up photo of the large machine that was closest to us. Prominently on its sides of the head of the machine was a picture that looked like a circle surrounding a cartoon tree. Getting new reports, sir. New machines have landed. They are dropping in close to cities. The lights flickered and the ground shook as we felt a mass of machines land above us followed by the muffled screams of those who witnessed it and immediately began panicking. We started hearing the desperate clang of gunfire as panicked citizens and soldiers started to open fire. Reports began flooding in on the machines being hit by our weapons and our guns doing nothing, not even scratching the paint. The few vehicles we had began to fire the few shells that we had in stock, only for the shells to disintegrate harmlessly against the machine's shields. 
I stood up from my seat and walked to the door. Sir, what in the red sky are you doing? My commander yelled it as he tried to stop me. Those are my people, I yelled out and startled my fellows. A moment of shock silence followed. Look around you. Now food supplies will run out completely within the next year. Our water supply is contaminated to such an extent that we don't have a future anyway. And look at this shit. Look at it. The planet is already dead. We already know it. Everyone hung their heads in sorrow and shame. Our entire future now consists of a few wealthy and powerful individuals hoarding the last remaining resources and hiding in bunkers until eventually the gene pool gets thin enough to sterilize them or supplies run out, if not to get eaten by the few desperate people that still remain. I refuse to be a part of that world. I was elected to serve this nation. I dedicated my entire damned life to service. If this world is to die, then I swear I will die with it. I shoved my subordinates aside and walked out the door. I walked with my head held high through the steel-reinforced corridor where eventually I encountered my people. Mothers and crying children huddled in corners and against the walls, cowering from the clanging noises and gunfire. The few men who were too starved or weakened to fight were with them, holding their families. I smiled my best smile at them as I walked by. Hold your fire! I said, hold your fire, dammit! The sergeant on duty yelled through his comms, trying to rally his men and stop the panic. Some men ignored him and continued meaninglessly expend ammunition that we didn't have. He grabbed several panicked soldiers and belted them one right across the face, yanking their weapons away and sitting them down, trying to calm them. I saw it firsthand. He was just standing there, staring at us. Massive beasts of heavy metal, the size of twenty-story buildings, six bulbous legs with a massive claw for feet that dug into the ground, mounted on top. Almost like a crab was a huge head with spiky protrusions jutting from it, a combination of both antenna and heavy armor plating. The plating looked arranged just so, giving the machines a sort of face with two large red streaks serving as its eyes. I stared it down, opening my arms and screaming out, Do your worst! Do you hear me, machine? We have endured greater threats than you! We shall always endure! You do your damned worst. I got a cheer of support and enthusiasm from my advisors, followed by all of us readying our weapons for a final firefight. The machine moved, tilting its head down and forward, directly looking at me. It spoke in perfect Iridian, its voice echoing across the area for miles. As you wish. Its visage changed to a bright green and its light began to emit massive amounts of energy. I closed my eyes, and others followed my lead, and we prepared for the end. It never came. Planetary recalibration preparation in progress. The, each machine across the planet spoke in perfect unison, their voices echoing across countless miles, empty, toxic oceans, and open deserts. I stood silent and still, as if I were expecting death to haul me away into oblivion. Nothing happened. Toxic filtration system activated. Carbon refraction system activated. Charging main release vector. I opened one eye sheepishly, cheating the death I'd apparently been promised. The only thing I saw was a giant machine being swallowed by massive green and blue energy particles. Genetic cloning operation ready. Wildlife receding system operational. What? Cloning? Wildlife receding toxic filtration? What were these machines doing? 
My arms grew tired and fell to my side. I looked around me. Most had given up as I did and were simply looking around to see what the blazes was going on. Planetary recalibration preparation complete. Everyone was dumbstruck, unable to respond and just stood there, having heard the machine's echoing words and lack of gunfire. Families and children filtered out from the bunkers and stood to watch. System active. The energy collected and blasted upwards into the skies like a pillar of light leading to the heavens. The entire planet was instantly blanketed in a shield of green and blue as the energy dispersed. Atmospheric pressure shielding at maximum, refracting gravitational field complete. For a split second, we felt a little lighter, then a little heavier, then normal again. Recalibration procedure commenced. T-minus 31 to completion. Stand by. The world around us began to shift and change. The area immediately surrounding the machine withered away what little life was left in the ground and the static shock of some kind. Then a bubble of green and blue energy began to radiate around it. As the bubble contacted the ground, life instantly appeared. The all-familiar blue grass of our planet, grass I had not seen in over a decade, began to grow in furious force as months of growth took place in mere seconds. The trees in the surrounding forest regained their purple-hued leaves and brown-gray trunks, the entire horizon suddenly disappearing behind a forest of beautiful foliage in nature. The dirt and sand under our feet vanished in a thick carpet of grass. Any spot that had exposed soil of any kind or quality now had patches of flowers or thick carpets of grass saturating its every available surface. It was at this moment... I captured the most beautiful sunset that I had ever seen. The mountains superimposed in the background, a freshly fallen blanket of snow topping the peak, with the first storm cloud seen in over ten years, now slowly closing in on the horizon. The sunlight now of purple and gold shining through the tree branches, saturating the world in a beautiful soft glow, a mixture of gold and purple. The storm clouds over the horizon gathered ever closer, and the thunderous rumble of approaching rain could be heard above the noise of the machines. Rain. I looked around me and saw children with fear in their eyes. Most of them had never seen rain or a storm, so were now clutching their parents' hands tightly, clinging to them for safety. The sunlight vanished, and the darkness kept at bay by only a soft light of the machine's energy. A wave of celebration and elation overcame us all as the first drops of rain felt in ten years began to hit the ground. As if overcome by a strange force, all of us began to dance in the rain. Flailing arms and tapping feet began to join the chorus of fresh water falling from the sky, bathing both us and the ground in life-giving water. We forgot ourselves for the next few hours and simply danced away the night until we got too wet or too tired and retreated to our bunkers or homes to sleep. While we were asleep, the machines continued their work. In the morning, I awoke and walked outside. Barely moments later, I heard a sound that I hadn't heard in 40 years, a loud territorial shriek of the shallow-tailed squall. I looked, and indeed, there it was, its long angular peep waving at me as it flapped its leathery wings defensively. The machine still stood in silence nearby, 
its energy fields dissipated. Now the only thing heard was the quiet hum of nature's beautiful sounds. Noises I thought I would never again hear filled my mind. And for the first time in as long as I can remember, I took a deep, long breath of the freshest, sweetest air that I've ever had. Slowly, as other people woke up and joined me, I walked around. And for the first time in forever, I took my shoes off and felt the beautiful softness of the blue grass under my feet. A few hours past morning, the machine startled all of us as it began moving again. It stomped its way through the ground and looked straight at us. Its voice boomed through the beautiful skies and everyone everywhere could hear it for miles. Even those underground could still hear it. We are humanity. You are not alone anymore. Listen and listen well. The terraforming procedure we just completed are nothing more than a measure to buy you time. This planet's biosphere is too unstable. It will die eventually, want it or not. Focus your efforts now on getting into space and colonizing other worlds. You have been supplied with fuel, tech, equipment, and enough food to give you a chance that we never had. Do not waste it. We will be waiting for you. The machines began to lift themselves into the air and off the planet, and within minutes, we were alone again. I took a long, deep breath one more time as we waved our saviors goodbye. The chaos began anew as commanders and officers began barking orders and securing supplies left by the human machines. Hydrogen engines, wind turbine blueprints, water filtration units, and hydrofusion reactors. It was all up to us at this point. Tech we could only dream of was at our fingertips. We are coming, humanity, and we owe you a beer. End of story. The Humans Poke Back, written by Sneaky the Lost. Ambassador Jim Prescott reached for the bottle of medication, having found the viscous pink fluid necessary as more information concerning the assault on New Tatooine unfolded. Part of him was sickened that he'd played a part in what happened, that he'd been played by politicians back home. Over 25 million confirmed dead now, almost half of the population of the planet, not to mention everyone that was in the orbitals or out in the belts. Maybe some politician had thought that it would require a horror like this to justify what was certainly to come, and maybe that politician was right. But it was still an indelible stain on the personal honor, a blot that would remain until the day he died. A day that will come later than for those souls who had been in the Hanth's way. The Hanth ambassador sneered when he didn't show up in the next Galactic Council meeting. It assumed that he was traumatized by the loss, and that he was too afraid to show himself. Well, there was trauma from the tragedy, yes. That wasn't why he didn't attend. He didn't trust himself, and... It would be a poor accounting of human diplomacy to personally kill the dirty bug with his own bare hands. However costly the price, at least the mothball fleet had become ready, and in far shorter time than he had feared it would. That was another indicator of his suspicion that someone had deliberately permitted this atrocity to occur. Political wheels had moved far too rapidly to have not been planned out in advance. The other thing, the faint silver lining, is that it was now proven beyond a shadow of a doubt what the Hanth were willing and able to do if they think they can get away with it. They've demonstrated to humanity the danger they represent, far clearer than any report. 
be it ever so strongly worded. After all, if they'd done this with some level of civility, if they'd simply conquered without committing wanton slaughter, things might have turned out very differently. But they demonstrated what they were capable of. Now, it was humanity's turn, and the galaxy at large will see what humanity is capable of when you insist on war without rules. May God have mercy upon us all, Jim thought to himself, and may the rest of the galaxy at large be willing to speak to us again after they see what coin we pay in kind with. Fleet Admiral Kacharum of the Hanth Imperial Navy was not amused. What do you mean that we haven't secured the surface yet? It's been another two weeks, and these are supposedly civilians. Why haven't they been pacified yet? Are your troops afraid of civilians with no significant weapons to speak of? General Pat Kai Lal met the Admiral's gaze evenly. I lost nearly a quarter of the invasion force on the first day of landing, Admiral. I won't have the courage of my soldiers insulted. A quarter? How, by the first egg, did you lose so many? <sighs> I knew you were of a secondary calf hive, but I didn't realize that they'd sent a complete incompetent to handle the job. The fleet admiral sneered at the general. How? Oh, because it's a mining colony. You vacuum sucking ingrate. Those stinking savages still use explosives. Yes, they use actual chemical explosives to do mining with, which also works quite well as improvised munitions. The entire initial landing blew up when we made the mistake of using their own landing pads, only to discover them to be rigged. I lost nearly a tenth of our salt shuttles in an afternoon. But down in the mines, it's actually worse. They don't hesitate to collapse their own tunnels on us. Even if it doesn't catch many anymore, it still blocks lines of aggression until the rubble can be cleared and the tunnels reinforced, which delays action still further. It's not like I'm getting an orbital support like I was supposed to, Fleet Admiral. The mines are too deep, General. I can blow up any surface target you care to identify any moment you wish. But not even my orbital strikes can sink that deep into the ground. Admiral, priority alert from the main sensor array. We have incoming hypertube. One of the officers in the station interrupted the briefing before it could get any more heated. The Admiral and the General gave each other a glance. They may be upset with each other but they both knew their jobs and their positions within the Imperium. The general left without further word, letting the Admiral handle the situation. How big? was the Admiral's first question. Big, sir. If their hyper-equipment is on par with the galactic average, I'd say twice the mass of our fleet, uh, maybe more, the officer on station dutifully replied. The Admiral's next command was almost instantaneous as he realized that it couldn't have been a friendly force. Flag to all units, we have incoming hostiles. Exit orbit immediately and enter combat formation. No one wanted to be caught pinned against the planet in the face of an incoming hostile fleet, and receiving a decisive and sensible order brought a sense of calmness to the crew. If they were going to ride into combat, at least their commanders knew what to do. Update, unknown fleet has exited hyper. Initial count indicates 86 independent masses. Scientists. The Admiral was mildly surprised that the humans had scraped together so many hulls there were, according to his sources, fewer than 100 vessels in their entire navy. None of them bigger than a frigate. Had those cursed crypt loaned them a few vessels, 
did was a primitive swan thing, but he had a healthy respect for the molluscoids and their proper naval vessels. CIC has identified 30 ships massing somewhere between destroyer and cruiser class, 30 somewhere between cruiser and battleship class, 20 which mass in the 5% larger than any known battleship class, and 6 which are roughly the size of Pollock's class cargo vessels. Yeah, are any identifiable as being of Krakneth make? The Admiral doubted it, given the oddball sizes reported, but that was the only way to explain what must be six missile colliers, unless they were troop transports, expecting to have to retake the planet on the ground. N negative, sir. None of the vessels are even remotely in the right mass readings for any known Krakneth vessel. Querying CIC to determine origin, the officer was busy with its console. The Admiral was pleased with its subordinate. It had accurately predicted what the Admiral's next order was, and was already executing it. Good. Now, I don't know where these ships come from, but with six missile colliers, they're clearly conveniently equipped, which means they might actually put up a fight. So moved into defensive formation, Bravo, until we know what we're dealing with. So, uh, the enemy has launched, another member of the tactical team reported. Not from this range. The enemy fleet was still dozens of light minutes away. Did they expect to use ballistic phases between stages to try and clear the gap? The Admiral did not dare countermand his previous fleet order, or try to shift its formation into a new one while under fire. The term order-counter-order-disorder sprung firmly to his mind. Uh, update. The launch appears to be some kind of drone. They certainly aren't launching like the standard missile patterns, at least, the officer in the sensor watch replied. Ah, drones. Then made more sense. Everyone in the galaxy knew about drones. Basically longer range but slower missiles, really. More maneuverable, bigger drives, but easy targets for counter-missiles. And they were bulky enough that you couldn't mass them like you could missiles in oversaturated missile defenses. About what he'd expect from the primitives. Still, with those six cargo vessels behind to feed them into continuous supply, they were at least a threat to be respected. Tactical, pass the defense officer the trace. D.O., keep a hard track on those drones and keep your threat profile updated. They might just have legs to get here after all. Aye, sir. But if they can't pull off more Excel than they're showing off now, I, I could spot them half my sensor array and still pick them off long before they get into engagement range. Yes, yes, I know. Still, don't let your guard down. They may be a primitive sort of weapon, but at least it is an actual weapon. Uh, sir, I have an incoming message from the hostile fleet. The communications officer spoke up. On the main screen, the Admiral quickly replied. He wanted to see who was courageous and stupid enough to try and pull this tactic. I am Admiral Karl Yankov, in command of the 16th Reserve Fleet. You have attacked a civilian colony without provocation or warning, causing millions of casualties, and have invaded a Terran Federation system. This is your one and only opportunity to surrender unconditionally. Failure to do so will result in the destruction of your entire fleet. Over to you. The sad fact of the sublight communications at these distances meant a significant time lag between communication requests. This message had to have been sent moments after exiting Hyper, gutsy of the fella, at least. Live Mike, the comms officer, intoned. Admiral Yankov, I am Fleet Admiral Kacharum of the Hanth Imperial Navy. This system is now a Hanth territory. I respect your courage, even as I lament your lack of uh, intellect. 
If you think a few drones are going to intimidate us, you have a lot to learn about how your betters handle combat. Allow me to give you a lesson, brief though it may be. It'll be the shame that you won't live long enough to profit from it. He gestured to the comms officer. Mike clear, it dutifully intoned. Fleet command to all ships, continue in defensive formation beta until we close to a range of ten light minutes. At that point, we shift to offensive formation alpha. All ships, make ready to fire on my command at that range. Flag officer, out. S sir, the drones appear to be keeping station with their fleet. Uh, perhaps they are reconsidering the wisdom of their aggressive action. The tactical officer spoke up. Doubtful. I don't know where they got their ships, but they're definitely here to die for their honor. Maybe they're worried about early proximity kills and keeping their drones within their point defense basket until they got close enough to sprint the gap. The Admiral was thinking out loud, but it was a solid theory as any. One counter to drone wave was to set up widespread of proximity fused missiles. Since they were slow and possessed no point defense to speak of, it isn't too hard to use a regular missile salvo to decimate a much larger wave of incoming drones even before they enter actual point defense range. It was generally seen as wasteful, but it was certainly successful. Puzzling. These humans, whatever trick they think they have, it can't be anything the galaxy hasn't seen before. Whatever ruse you think is so clever will not work. You are as good as dead. Admiral Yankov sat in flag ops, overseeing the fleet as the response came in. At the mention of drones, he sharply looked at his tactical officer. Is there any chance that they could have seen our drones? They're already out ahead by a good bit. Doubt it, sir. At least they haven't reacted to them. Maybe they're talking about the sting ships? The tactical officer offered a counter-suggestion. Uh, from what Mullin says, no one uses such parasite ships, which means no one has a clue of what kind of firepower those six Enterprise-class supercarriers can pack with their string ships. Uh, they might have mistaken them for a couple shuttle-sized suicide drones that we have a couple of reports about. Possible. In either case, do we have any kind of fix on their nav patterns yet? The Admiral didn't expect any reasonable result yet. No one would be stupid enough as to have such a simplistic evasion algorithm in the face of an enemy fleet. But the longer they got a look, the closer they got to finding a solution. As a firm a lock as you can please, sir. Get this. They have no erratic maneuvers at all. Their entire fleet is moving straight as an arrow. Didn't even need to query the quantum coprocessor. The scorn in the tactical officer's voice was harsh, but not unwarranted. Quantum coprocessors were expensive toys that gave military ships their unmitigated edge in combat. Quantum processing was much hyped when someone came up with a way to do it without needing a cryogenic temperatures. But while they were enormously useful in a collapsing and variable state, they could never replace conventional processors. However, they could augment them, especially when you had a very large data set of possibilities to sort through, such as decrypting an algorithm or calculating a firing solution. Well, uh, they think in terms of missiles which still have gas left in their tanks to be able to handle erratic maneuvers, so why bother wasting the cycles evading something that we'll just home in on? Sir, from that perspective, it makes sense. But it is not going to do them any favors when we bring them in range. I'll be generous to them. Aperture-class dreadnoughts are cleared to engage in eight light minutes if they continue to give us free shots. If there are any left, the rest of the fleet can engage as they can range. And for the stingships, sir, his tactical officer prompted, 
Hold position to thicken point defense until their first launch. Then we'll see from there. It was a cruel irony that their focus on energy weapons meant most of their ships had precious little in the way of systems dedicated to point defense. Of course, even their main batteries could fill the role just as well went at least some way to mitigating that flaw. But having nearly a thousand Sting ships with their quad pulse lasers hanging around should help offset that deficiency. That worried about a few missiles, sir, the tactical officer's tone of voice, was the epitome of politeness. A few, no, but some of those reports have hundreds and even thousands of missiles per volley. I value my people's lives. The only thing that happens from an excess of caution is that bugs get to live a few minutes longer, after all. Don't worry, those pilots will get their chance. Never fear. We've got quite a laundry list of locations where their particular skill set will be invaluable indeed. As you say, sir, the tactical officer replied with professional aplomb. Missiles, Trace, the sense officer announced. Numbers, the admiral snapped back more sharply than he intended. We have 350, that is 350 missiles inbound. Look pretty densely clustered as well. Our drones are getting good readings. Isn't that all? Well, looks like we're overestimated them. Good. Message the wing commander. You are free to engage the incoming missiles en route to your targets. If there are any left for us to deal with, you buy the beer. Little fear of that, the tactical officer muttered under his breath. The admiral, with his soft smile, pretended he didn't hear it. Fleet, admiral. Their drones have begun their sprint. Well, uh, I guess one might call it a sprint if they were being generous. More like a vigorous stumble. And a disorganized one at that. The sensor officer's disgust at the drone's flight paths was clear, and with good reason. They could have made fairly reasonable speed had they been moving in a straight line in an organized formation. However, they weren't. The disorganized mob was more of a cloud of sensor blips than anything coherent. I suppose they must have taxed their targeting platforms with their numbers. Either that, or they just don't have enough control channels and are... Uh, Having to rotate control, the number of drones was impressive, no doubt. The Admiral thought to himself, They must have flushed every single drone packed into those colliers to drum up the launch that large. But a rotating control pattern invalidates the drone's sole advantage of maneuverability. Still, one can't have that debris field masquerading as a drone swarm clutter up local space. Give me a proximity launch, just to be certain. Perhaps he was being overly cautious but he preferred to err on the side of caution. After all, once those drones were taken care of, his opponents were all but defenseless, and he could eliminate them at his leisure. Sir, status update. The drone swarm has uh, overflown our initial solver and... And... Now it had spit it out. The Admiral wondered what could have affected the sensor officer so badly. Ah, uh, our initial solver, sir. It, it's, it's gone, sir. What? The Admiral shouted in shocked disbelief. The drone, sir. Uh, they they appear to be outfitted with point defense clusters. Uh, they engaged that launch at a half-light minute, uh, since missiles didn't recognize them as a threat. They didn't even try to evade. At first, rage threatened to consume the fleet admiral. But logic soon followed and calmed him down. Point defense, you say? His tone of voice was calm and professional, almost too calm in the mind of the officers present. Uh, that uh, appears to be the case, sir, the sensor officer confirmed. Well, that explains why they were held back until after our launch, despite a drone's theoretical range advantage. But they got too cute for their own good. Uh, sir? The officer was confused. They just shot their missile colliers dry to stop one volley. 
What are they going to do against the 49 others that we have just on internal tubes alone? And since those drones have point defense clusters, they aren't packed with explosives. Thus, point defense clusters are expensive to run. And you don't have room for a fusion reactor on a drone, which means that it has to be running on auxiliary battery, which was probably just spent. In other words, they're basically kinetic platforms now. A mass with engines, no threat whatsoever. The Admiral waved an appendage and then added, Oh sure, it's a cute trick, engaging missiles outside a point defense envelope to fool an ECCM package into ignoring it. But it isn't going to save them, not in the long run. The fleet admiral reluctantly gave his flashbags the credit where it was due. It was a clever trick, one that would have been taken into consideration in future engagements. But all the humans' reputation for unorthodox thinking won't save them from the follow-up salvos. They'd spent six missile colliers worth of mass to stop a single salvo. The old saw about spending millions to save dozens came to mind. He would almost pity them. Almost. All right, fleet order, the Aperture-class dreadnoughts. Activate and tune gravetic lenses and prepare to fire, Admiral Yenkov ordered. One of the problems that had plague-directed energy weapons was a matter of attenuation. Firing a stream of photons, or whatever energy wave you like, worked better in a vacuum because they didn't have an atmospheric distortion. However, when you're talking about targets several light minutes away, the problem becomes one of focus. The beam would gradually widen until it basically became an oversized flashlight. The gravity lens was humanity's answer to that. A small concave gravity field that acted much like a focusing lens. One that could be adjusted to put the focal point on target. Of course, they weren't cheap to operate, which is why the biggest ones required something the size of a dreadnought to mount them. But it also meant that they had the furthest theoretical focal point. The bigger problem, at least against fleets that understood the threat, was a matter of aiming. Space was vast, and directed energy weapons were merely light speed. In other words, if your target was several light minutes away, it would take several minutes for your beam to reach them. And if they performed any course correction during that time, they wouldn't be in the place that you thought that they would be. This was at least partially mitigated by the quantum coprocessor, who could analyze a ship's movement patterns and, with some degree of accuracy, postulate a data set of possibilities that had a higher chance of being correct. Further, reinforcement had followed until they had a reasonable firing solution. It was rare for a first volley to actually hit, but the data recovered from the initial volley was valuable in further collapsing the data set down to a few predictable results, and thus increasing the accuracy of the subsequent volleys. Human navigators had adapted by plotting erratic courses corrections as a normal part of their duties, some likened it to creating a symphony using prepackaged evasion patterns as leitmotifs which were woven together to create orderly chaos, to the utter ruination of most tracking packages and sharply decreasing the weapon's effective range. Except that these bugs didn't understand the concept of evasive maneuvers. They had shifted their formation before they began firing, but that was the only course correction that they had made which meant that the petawatt range main batteries on the Aperture-class dreadnoughts were about to carve through their formation like a hot knife through butter. Have the drones identified their flagships? The Admiral asked calmly. Combat drones had been a part of combat for longer than humanity had traveled between the stars. These days, their job was to obtain and transmit information back to their fleet. They had small but powerful FTL comms packages in them. The bandwidth wasn't much to write home about, 
but they didn't really need a lot of bandwidth for the numbers that they were reporting back. And it gave the Terran Federation a distinct advantage if anyone didn't get any bright ideas about attempting to maneuver. Yes, sir. Shall we target their flagship first? The tactical officer's grin was predatory. By no means. They wanted to teach us a lesson. I want their flag officer to understand the magnitude of its error before it is permitted to follow its personnel. Save the enemy flagship for last. It was a small cruelty, but one that carried no consequences for his fleet. A tiny down payment on debts owed. Six hours later, and 16 reserve fleet were in parking orbit, having sustained no casualties and having eliminated all hostile naval forces. The hand troop transports had attempted to surrender, but the problem with these distances was a matter of time. By the time the troop transports had messaged the fleet to surrender, and that message had arrived at the fleet, they had already been fired upon. Not that surrender was an option anyway, but it salved Admiral Yankov's conscience to know that he couldn't have accepted their surrender, even if he had wanted. Holmes, send a message back to HQ. Message reached, fumigation successful, all clear to send aid. The Transstellar FTL comm was a fickle thing, with an even lower bandwidth than the in-system version. Worse, anyone who actually knew how they functioned might be able to listen in if they were within the line of effect, which is why they were routinely sent in code. He wasn't a hyperphysicist, he didn't know exactly how it worked, nor did he need to in order to use it. But it was something that no one else apparently had, an advantage humanity intended to keep under its cap for as long as they could. It would take a few days for the Red Cross to send the humanitarian aid fleet. In the meantime, his boys had some initial search and rescue to do. Half of the stingships were on SAR patrols in the belts and the debris of the orbital stations, that hadn't deorbited yet, searching for any signs of emergency life pods. He didn't have much hope at this point, but any hope was better than none. Admiral Yankov wondered how the other reserve fleets were handling their missions. He was very grateful for the increased automation of the reserve ships. A single naval patrol frigate crew could just about operate one of the Kilroy-class cruisers if they had to, despite the cruiser being almost 20 times the size. Heck, even the dreadnoughts were able to be crewed by no more than twice the frigate's crew allotment, although most of those extra bodies were in weapons targeting and engineering stations. It meant that they could actually crew the ships that had been pulled out of Mothball from the Great War without needing to resort to conscription. And it meant that their response could be had in weeks rather than years that it would take to train up even the green crews. Part of him was frankly a little terrified at the capabilities they had deliberately set aside when these vessels had been put into a parking orbit with their atmosphere vented. Now, he fully understood exactly what these ships were capable of. He knew why they were mothballed. They were too good at what they did. The temptation to misuse them would have been tremendous. But, floating out in a parking orbit carefully shielded, they'd suffered no corrosion. It was like opening a time capsule, perfectly pristine and preserved in a vacuum of space, ready to be put into service once again should a sufficient threat arise. And now that one has, these great giants of war have once again been filled with a terrible resolve and set into motion, and they shall not rest until that threat has been neutralized. End of story. Why Humans Banned Aliens From Eating Substance C Written by Farmwitch4275 Video plays Dr. Clemens Ford, New Eden Alien Rehabilitation Center. 
Dr. Clement Ford recording now. We have received another patient from the Australian Empire. A military man this time, approximate age is around 80 or so. Young for his kind, see attached. Video cuts to a show of an Australian, similar to the kind of vampire elf biped, wearing a heavy straight jacket. He is bent over and appears to be worshipping a particular linoleum tile in his cell. Name is Cantaris Khan, equivalent rank of Staff Sergeant. Suffered a severe allergic reaction resulting in addiction to the substance C, type S. Cause of intoxication and subsequent addiction is due to improper curing of substance C before consumption. Subject has begun to worship the linoleum tiles in his cell in response to the fevered delirium due to the withdrawal. Video shows a clip of a soldier being restrained by several human officers. Soldier, in a fevered delirium, uses his teeth to rip a piece of tiling off the wall and begins shuffling about his cell. After chewing pieces of bedding away, he uses them to construct a makeshift shrine to the debris. Prospect for rehabilitation is nominal. The road to recovery will be long and arduous. However, it is very likely that he will make a full recovery in due time. End Log 1 Video 7, Dr. Clemens Ford, New Eden Alien Rehabilitation Center. Dr. Clement Ford reporting, the addiction rates to unsanitized variants of substance C are becoming absurd to say the least. We've received three new patients in the last week thus far. Patient 1 is a Turian, patient 2 is an Olivarchus. Both cases are extremely unusual, in that normally they shouldn't be susceptible to effects of substance C. Video cuts and shows the sight of a Torian, a humanoid centaur-like being with a head resembling a boar. He is babbling to himself, speaking incoherently in tongues and demon speak with grunts and whistles as he stares up the ceiling. The camera cuts to the next patient, an Olivarchus, a giant spider resembling a certain species of wolf spider the size of a cow. This one is wandering in a mindless circles in the ceiling, constantly circling the room light. His mandibles are making abnormal clicking and slurping sounds as he goes. Again, the intoxications are noted to be unsanitized consumption of substance C. In the case of the Taurian, an overdose of type C caused by an impromptu eating contest. In the case of the Olivarchus, however, the cause of intoxication is due to accidental consumption of type L. Apparently, he had been eating his co-workers' lunches and got his comeuppance. Video shows a trial of exposure to substance C as part of treatment. Torin is given a small sample of substance C and responds by screaming wildly and attempting to attack the attendant. He is stopped dead in his tracks by a security officer carrying a cattle prod. He is denied access to substance C and resumes babbling uncontrollably in his cell. Video cuts to Olivarchus' cell. Presented with substance C, it is distinctive scent. He moves close to the plate containing it then stares at it for hours on end, seemingly huffing the fumes. When substance C is removed from his cell, he has to be restrained by security personnel with judicious force to prevent him from harming staff. The Olivarchus can easily process withdrawal with some medication to shut down neuron activity for a time and quit cold turkey. He will be out of here in a few days. Uh, the Torian, however, is a different story. All staff attendants have to be male only due to the Torian response to human females. You know the ones I'm talking about, and uh, the subject has to be restrained by the minimum of seven security personnel. End of log. Video 3, Dr. Clemens Ford, New Eden Alien Rehabilitation Center. Dr. Clemens Ford, log 3. This one is um, serious, uh, uh, very serious. There is some kind of a... Oh, I shall not devolve into that petty speculation this early. Uh, back to work. 
Video cuts to a cell of a Laurentis, a large, bulbish, jellyfish-like creature. Her purple coloration denotes a female. She is emitting strange vibration as she wanders around her cell, occasionally squealing some kind of incantation or ritual. She is unable to stop her inking, and her room has to be periodically cleaned. This is an odd one. She seems to be a part of some cult that worships substance C. She rejects all forms of sustenance that are not made of substance C, or at the very least taste or smell like it. Favorite flavor seems to be the Type G from France. Uh, no need for heavy security with this one, just around the clock cleanup crew. Video cuts again and shows a procedure for cleaning. The Laurentis approaches, then begins to preach her religious beliefs, offering substance C to the cleaning crew. Cleaning crew are required to refuse, clean, and leave. Laurentis resumes her behavioral pattern when alone. Subject sees to display the form of fanaticism that completely goes against her species' very nature. Laurentis are usually mildly annoyed know-it-alls uh, that focus on logic and scientific methodology. This, uh, uh, this is beyond abnormal. Log ends. Video 4, Dr. Clemens Ford, New Eden Alien Rehabilitation Center. Dr. Clemens recording, this cult is getting unusual and addiction rates are absolutely skyrocketing. A Varadinus has been admitted after being released from a stay in the intensive care ward. Apparently, he was a rather severe allergic reaction to substance C, specifically a type of carbohydrate it has. Unfortunately, he is very much addicted to substance C, and has not only three separate overdose incidents, but also twelve separate incidents of allergic reaction. Video cuts to show several incidents where a very dangerous, a giant wasp-like creature is writhing in pain on the hospital bed, restrained by eight people. He is revived from cardiac arrest no fewer than eight times due to allergic reactions. When stable enough to be left alone, he attempts to make a nest out of the bedding and tries to chew his way out of the room by gnawing at the walls. This one is under continuous surveillance and won't be leaving anytime soon. He has gone into cardiac arrest 85 times since he arrived. Under normal circumstances, substance C is harmless to non-humans if it has been properly sterilized and clean. Substance D is teeming with earth-based bacteria after all. It is what gives it the taste and texture. Sterilizing it with simple procedures doesn't really remove much of the taste. I don't know why so many are choosing baseline substance C. I will have to ask for a formal investigation to be launched. This is getting out of hand. Video 5, Dr. Clemens Ford. New Eden Alien Rehabilitation C. Video shows Dr. Clemens in his office, covered in sweat, nursing a head wound. Help! For all of our sakes, help! This is an emergency broadcast to all known sectors. Patients have broken out in mass riot all across New Eden. I told those insufferable idiots not to hold the festival on New Eden, but they wouldn't listen. I am immediately calling for immediate cessation of all exports of substance C to all non-human planets and the permanent banning of all consumption of this product by non-humans. This is ins- The video shows camera falling off the desk, sounds of a violent struggle followed by screams of a Torian in babbling, psychotic rage. The human delegation stands in front of the council, showing the footage of New Eden Festival riots. Torians, hurling stands from the shop several feet into the crowds, babbling wildly and salivating uncontrollably. Images of Laurentus offering people plates full of substance C, then going crazy and inking them when they refuse, sometimes capturing people and force-feeding them. The video continues and shows the oligarchs trying up a family of humans and force-feeding them substance C, growing agitated and regressive when refused. 
Video continues showing more images of humans undergoing various forms of capture, torture, or derangement from the drug-crazed aliens before being mercilessly beaten back and restrained by military personnel. The human ambassador closes the video and stands there, giving everyone the I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed look. Well, care to explain yourselves? The council just looks at the human sheepishly. Some avoid eye contact and distract themselves. Others nervously shuffle their seats. Well, um, um, I thought so. Since it is obvious that you can't control yourselves, we have no other option, the human delegate said, presenting a piece of paper. No, came the resounding response from all delegations. We, the Terran Federation, do by ban the sale of substance C, formerly known as cheese, to any non-humans. This is not negotiable, he said simply and turned away. The council began to wail in protest and break down in tears as they were denied one of the most delicious confections known to the galaxy. Cheese. End of chapter. Story number two. That is not what humans are for, by in Babylon they wept. The ambassador asked me if I wanted a party favor. I was tempted, but human minds were notoriously resilient. What might bend their mind into an amusing shape for an hour or two could break mine altogether. I declined. The ambassador shrugged in a way that made it very clear that he considered it my loss, before dropping several spoonfuls of the substance into a specialized port in his exosuit. By default, the visor was dark enough one could barely make out the dark outline of the creature's bulbous skull. But as smoke started to trickle up into the dome, even that was lost. Where I should have seen an alien face, there was my own dim reflection, twisted by the curvature of the glass and the slow royal of smoke. It is rare to receive guests, it said in my voice. As if stealing my face wasn't enough, it was an unsettling but common convention for humans to borrow the voice of whoever they were talking to. The generous view of this was that they enjoyed being mirrors. Personally, I'd always viewed them as a species afraid of being observed. It is hard to see the mirror underneath a reflection. Do you want more? I asked. I couldn't see its face, but I could tell that it was exhaling by the way vortices formed in the smoke. Yes, it replied, but I know my limits. It then carefully pushed the remaining pouch of powder towards the center of the table. The question of whether it had been talking about guests or of its recreation suddenly grew fuzzy. I decided to assume the best and plowed forward. Our colony by our post baton, it's struggling, it finished. There was a glint of white inside the smoke, a hint of exposed wet bone. Weeks of study informed me that this was intended to set me at ease. Yes, bad neighbors? The question was posed innocently enough, but it gave away the entire story. Twenty years of guerrilla strikes, of blood and coin and lost life, all summed up in two words. A pathetically small conflict, and yet large enough that the humans knew of it. I did not answer. I stood still and watched my own face stare back. Humans loved games. I did not want to play. It matched me again, always the mirror, coy when I was coy, serious when I was serious. Any requests for how they are handled? No unnecessary bloodshed. It inhaled deep enough to clear the smoke from the dome. My reflection was interrupted, replaced by the form of the thing in the suit. 
The lines of the face were murky enough, but what shone brightest through with the gloss was its eyes. Perfect paper, white spheres, slick and shining. It seemed wrong for something to look so earnest and so hungry. That is not what humans are for. I could not decide if it was agreeing to or denying my request. I looked into its eyes as long as I could, as long as I could still make them out through the haze drifting up through the next slot. Only when they were well and truly gone did I take my glove off and reach across the table and gripped my hand, clenched it round it hard, and then let it go suddenly. I've been told that this meant that the deal was sealed. I should have just left, but I always was curious, so I asked my final question. Why us? Why not them? Because you came to me first, I replied, as if the answer was obvious, and I was very bored. It showed me the door very soon after. I had the presence of mind to avoid running until I made it out of the building. End of story. Exponential, written by Shane Watson. As a child, I knew the world was the way it was, and that was that. Changes, even small ones, were difficult to accept. I knew that the world was and would remain static. How enclave of skin tents in the forest was there, I would live hunting and raising a family for my entire life. I should have paid more attention when the elders talked about how fast the humans advanced. The elders understood that human advancement was exponential, even if they didn't have a language or math to describe it. Still, I began training as a far speaker before I took my first steps or said my first word. By the time I was nearing adulthood, humans were putting down metal rails and wires in the east. Humans had no far speakers, but could send messages along the wires, the elders said. These humans were different, the elders said. They said that the light-skinned humans in odd clothes were English and carried a curse in their touch. I don't know how much I believe them, but enough that I feared the English and wouldn't go near them. The other humans, the ones that had come along before, wore clothes like our own. We spoke enough of that other's language that we traded with them and shared knowledge of game movements, whether warnings from our seer and anything relating to the English. I took my first wandering when I reached the age of adulthood at 60, traveling with only my bow, a spear, and one I could carry on my back. I left the forest and wandered the plains. It was there that I fell in love with human woman, stands in the grass. She was far younger than I in years, but in terms of human lifespan, my peer. I stayed with her tribe for an entire year, becoming fluent in their language and teaching her mine. I took part in one of their horse raids in the neighboring tribe and was accepted as a brave after. For the next 40 years, the only contact I had with my own people was by far speaking. My name in the tribe came Sharp Ears Hold Spear. The time I lived with the tribe was my first real introduction to the rapid pace of human change. We had no children, sadly. Of course, I know now how rare non-assisted human elf pregnancies are. Still, I never wavered in my love for Stans, nor she for me. In no time at all, she grew old before my eyes. It was forty years and six days after I moved into her family's teepee that I held her hands in my lap as she took her last breath. Far too short a time. Still, I looked at my belongings in the teepee, my headdress, my winter rabbit fur pants and jacket, a bison short, 
my summer breechcloth, the bark skins I was wearing, and, beside my spears and bow, a rifle I'd taken from a black fleet brave. I dressed Stans in her own two-skin dress, her best moccasins, and all her jewelry and regalia. Since we were the only ones living in the teepee, I moved everything out of it and used it for the viewing. For two days, I sat beside her as the tribe came to pay their respects. She had no surviving kin, so it was up to me alone to bury her. The chief, who was just a child when I first arrived, offered his family's help. I was glad for it, as the ground was beginning to freeze. I returned home to the forest after that, no longer feeling at home among the new. I gave away all but my best horse, my bow, my favorite spear, my rifle, and my buckskins I wore. When I rode in on my horse, I expected surprise from my kin at the horse and rifle. Instead, I found a number of horses, rifles, pistols, and even a few pieces of cavalry clothing that had been cleansed by the healers. The rate of change started to become clear. The elders were correct. Every human innovation was built on top of earlier innovations. The more the humans invented, the more and faster they would come up with new miracles. Their towns spread across the land and grew into cities. Still, I felt there was a certain permanence to the world itself. The sun rose and set, the seasons changed, and the world was immune to the short lives of the creatures on her skin, including us. I still clung to the illusion of permanence. When I look back on it now, I realize that at just over a hundred years old, I was still young and naive. The more the humans spread, bringing with them orcs, halflings, gnomes, and others, the less we saw them as cursed. We were, by small, gradual steps, assimilated into the United States of America. At some point, we dispersed, not all at once, of course, but one by one, we moved to towns and cities. I moved to San Francisco, when the railroad was completed across the former hunting grounds of the tribes. The nearest city, Cheyenne, had a telegraph office and no use for a far speaker like me. In California, I met humans who spoke language that had no relation to that of the tribes and little to no relation to English. I learned the language of those around me, Spanish, Mandarin, German, and took employment wherever I could find it. At the start of the Great War, I enlisted. The presence of the Farseekers was a boon for the army. They had a new wireless device that had about 2,000-yard range, weather permitting. Farseekers, however, could communicate over tens of miles. There were a few of us, but it still made a difference. During the war, I realized how outdated and useless was my Henry's repeater rifle compared to the new firearms. At the war's close, I returned to San Francisco and sold my repeater to a collector for $4. Horses and carriages disappeared from the streets. Streetcars and automobiles took their place. Steam and diesel ships plied the oceans, and the air over the south of the city was often black with coal smoke. Meanwhile, I got a formal education, all the way up to a bachelor's degree. When the Second World War rolled around, there was no more need for fast speakers. The new radios could communicate over hundreds of miles and didn't require years of training or any magical ability. I re-enlisted and found myself trained as a B-29 radio operator and gunner in the Army Air Force. I spent two combat tours in Europe, 48 combat missions flown, often limping home in a bomber that resembled Swiss cheese. After the war, I decided I needed to slow down, go somewhere that didn't grow and change as rapidly as San Francisco. 
The crew training I'd received had been at a military airfield outside the small city of Phoenix, Arizona. At one-tenth of the population of San Francisco, it seemed perfect. Sure, the city had ramped up some for the war production distribution, but with the war over, that was certain to come to a halt, especially given the nature of the place. Faster than I could have imagined, Phoenix grew from an agricultural center to a major industrial area. From the city itself, the suburbs sprawled across the inhospitable desert like a spreading infection. In recent years, I've looked at the housing development that has taken over what used to be the fields where I'd labored, and sometimes wonder why I haven't moved. My house was still newish when I bought it after the war. Now, it sits in an anachronistic piece of architecture amidst carbon copy homes. If life taught me anything, it's that the only constant thing is change. Not just tools and weapons, but politics, morals, social ethics, utopian ideals, and the very earth itself. Like everyone else, I've been pulled along by those changes. After the fields got paved over, I finished out my doctorate in the history of indigenous Americans with a focus on how the indigenous elves and humans integrated. There's an old joke about elves being history teachers because they all lived it. In my case, it's true. Every year since I began teaching this course in 1962, I have my freshman students make a list of every technical and social advancement that has been made since their birth. I do this exercise as an eye-opener of sorts to get the students thinking about the rate of change in the world. They all know the adage, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it, but they don't really grasp its importance. As the students see the ever-lengthening list over the years, it becomes clear just how easy it is to be blind to recent history. The noise and the clamor of change drowns out the lessons of the past, I tell them, unless you are careful to pay attention. This was typed on a computer in an air-conditioned room under LED lighting while trying to avoid the messages on my cell. The most recent iteration of the fast speakers, telegraph, phone, wireless, and so on. What will replace that? I don't know. But I will be here to see it, probably sooner than anyone expects. That is both the blessing and curse of being an elf in a world where humans have almost completely taken over. Not through conquest, but through the ever-increasing rate of invention. In a world where change occurs at an exponential rate, nothing is static. There is no permanence. Tomorrow is not predictable, and I can finally say, I'm okay with that. End of story. Planet Dirt, written by the cursor, hasn't moved. It is an unfortunate fact that the debate bro not only refused to die, but apparently thrived on every single planet with something like an internet. And worse yet, they went up like a lantern dropped in a hay barn when multiple species of sapiens connected their interplanetary networks. Save us from the lowest common denominator. However, amongst the catastrophic trend that absolutely refused to die, there was a stream that fleetingly approached intellectual stimulation. What is the whole galaxy wrong about was a simple enough premise. A doctor of xenoanthropology from a six-eyed, eight-limbed, manners-observed invari hosted and brought on a panel of charismatic streamers from other races to face off against one brave sod who would flail about to try and make their personal, national, or species point in the face of overwhelming polite ridicule. Surprising to only the aforementioned lowest common denominator, 
that brave sod actually eked out a victory just over 20% of the time, and only the most savvy of viewers had an inkling that occasionally the polite professor deliberately chose an opponent for the panel who had a point in order to help dispel mistaken stereotypes. The dirtling guest was not such an occasion, not on purpose. Ura, entertaining and entrepreneurial academic fully expected a dirtling, or human as they prefer, to be another example of their famously drunk and sweaty flow rider mans, which must be incredibly common to gain such notoriety. Since our professor, who goes by the pseudonym Modresser, the delightfully clever mashings of the trade English words of moderator and professor mashed together with all the grace of smashing a russet and sweet potato together and calling it a new dish. Had written a whole one paper on the flow rider man's phenomenon based on the news articles they filtered out of planet dirt, the Terran Republic of Federated Planets, and across the connected galaxy without ever finding the original reports or visiting the distant world himself. He was confident in his knowledge of dirtlings and their culture. Surely, such an educated being should be immune to confirmation bias, expectancy bias, and primacy bias. He was a xenoanthropologist, after all. Consequently, he chose his opposing panelists for their popularity within humor metrics rather than something more useful like intellectual challenge metrics or even diplomatic conversation metrics. This is why Dr. Matthew Fujika narrowed his eyes when he saw what was the cultural equivalent of neckbeards with cheetah dust stained in the panelist section of the overlay on his hollow table. Modresser was confident that since the dirtling didn't immediately flip him off, the suffering doctor hadn't noticed the calculated insults towards the first human academic brought onto his show. He was, after all, a published expert on dirtling culture, so he got on with the business of starting the show which he deliberately scheduled to give the guests no time to establish rapport or stream. In this case, it wasn't an insult, but a new guest tradition, a sort of baptism by fire, or rather, whatever his cultural equivalent idiom would be. Hello and welcome, loyal viewers, he began as Dr. Fujika tried not to glare at his fellow guests. I am your host, Madressa, and I brought three fan favorites of our panelists today. Big Big 4206-6969, the frame around an avian head with ruffled and unkempt feathers, and a hooked seed-crushing beak lit up helpfully. Inglorious Traveler, a head that in all likelihood isn't meant to have the folded ridge the fat drooping over three edges, all the three chins under the meat-tearing tusks drooping below its glistening lips was indicated. And, of course, zero zero Unbreakable Carapace zero zero. He finished, as the last of the panelist frames helpfully indicated what Dr. Fujuka could only approximate to a beetle with peanut butter smeared on its mandibles and compound eyes. For the sake of everybody's sanity, their scream names were all pronounced as if they were actual words and were translated when possible so that audiences were spared the spine-crushing cringe induced by reading out gamer tags aloud verbatim. And now, for the first time as a contender... Modressa lit up. Dr. Fujika's name for the audience said, Matt. This was another insult that even the most drunken of the Flowrider mans couldn't help but notice. But even still, one of the panelists, Big Beak 4206969, helpfully pointed it out for the pleasure of the viewers. Your, your, your parents named you a carpet. <laughs> That's egg-breaking stupid. 
Modressa was fully prepared to just lean back and enjoy the inevitable shit show, practically guaranteed by such a profane insult to a dirtling. Dr. Vajiga didn't even flush with an amusing anger display. Instead, he coldly replied, No, they did not. My name is Dr. Matthew Fujika, and I allow my friends to truncate my first name. As we are not acquainted, I will thank you to address me as Dr. Fujika. Chat was immediately full of vulgar insults directed towards Big Big 4206969, who had made the mistake of keeping a chat window open to enjoy watching the human getting mocked on an interstellar stage. Therefore, he was very quickly flustered enough to press the attack. Dr. Floweridge, and you think that's less stupid? Somehow, Dr. Fujika spoke even more coldly. I shall now inform you of the significance of the meme numbers in your name, Beak. 420 refers to an intoxicant plant imbibed via smoke inhalation and is associated with laziness and gluttony. And the 69 is a number that refers to a sexual position involving mutual oral stimulation of the genitals. If we're having a stupid name contest, I happily concede. Big Big 420 6969's feathers somehow looked even more ruffled, and he rubbed his head in agitation while Mod Reza swooped in to save him. No, no, we are not comparing our online tags in a cringe contest. Those of us who go by screen names or gamer tags know that cringe is pretty much a universal tradition. Since we are here to learn what the entire galaxy is wrong about and what you are right about, what this is depends mainly on you, Dr. Fujika. My contention is twofold. In the first place, my planet is not named Dirt. And in the second place, naming it Earth is not a uniquely human naming convention. Chat exploded. Humanity, with the knowledge that their champion would be on, had a sizable chunk of the audience. So there were innumerable insults directed to human-coded screen names, while said humans voiced their anticipation of the upcoming intellectual slaughter with varying degrees of profanity. The Legion of Mods was hard-pressed to keep the vitriol within the site's TOS, and on top of that, the explanation of Big Big 420-6969's name had attracted the pawn bots, an absolute cluster. The panel was little better, since they simply howled with laughter as Modressa affected a dispassionate patience which allowed him to keep up appearances of a good manners while still propping up laughing stocks for ridicule. To his chats and the panel's chagrin, Dr. Fujitra simply waited with patience. Since the turtling had failed to live up to the racial stereotype, Unbreakable Carapace helpfully pointed out, My translator seems to have told you that your planet is not named Dirt, but it is named Dirt. Dirtlings are like that. Inglorious Traveler mocked smugly. Different hoots for the same rotted concept. Well, you overblubbered space wars. If we're going to drop any pretense at manners, I suggest you clean the clam grease out of your whiskers before casting stones. He shot back coldly before going on. We have many words with overlapping meanings, not multiple words with the same precise meaning. Very much like the language spoken by our esteemed host. The mods were timing people out as fast as their interfaces would allow, but the admin VI still were attracted to the ensuing torrent of profanity and racial slurs brought on by the brief exchange of racial insults, and their ban hammers were hot. It was about the absolute best possible result for Modressa, since the super chats were flowing so fast that even those couldn't be read with any reliability. His show gained 12 new sponsors, and his subscribers shot past the 100 billion mark. 
That sapphire play button was finally his. These material facts made it rather easy for him to cordially say, Indeed, the humans are not the only ones whose languages have synonyms. A full 36.7394 repeating languages catalogued have that very same feature. Once again, it was unbreakable carapace who filled the breach. Please elucidate the difference between the words. Gladly. Dirt refers to those loose mineral deposits on the surface of our crust, though it is sometimes used to include compounds including some biomass. Earth, on the other hand, encompasses all of the features of our planet's crust, and it did so before we understood the makeup of our world. It is the foundation we build on. It is the fertile ground from which crops spring. It is the rugged prairies that pasture our livestock. It is not just base minerals. It is everything beneath our feet. Having somewhat recovered from his previous humiliation, Big Beak 420-6969 essayed another jab. So basically, you're insisting that your planet's name is slightly less stupid than everybody says. No, Dr. Fijiko said icily. Pay attention. First, I insist on the proper nomenclature, and hopefully the reach of this platform will help with the various translator algorithms, and thus lessen the irritation of humans everywhere. Second, I contend that the naming convention is common, rather than unique example of humanity's alleged stupidity. Name one other planet named after the ground. The disheveled duster shot back. Well, OI literally translates to ground. If you use the same uncharitable standards applied to the cradle world, there is also the Gandian, Resian, Bjork, and Evermem, all of which are cradle worlds whose names can be translated as ground. Well, that's not fair, Inglorious Traveler interjected. Neslan doesn't just mean ground. Earth doesn't just mean the ground either. Fine, fine. So there are other places just as dumb as darlings. The blubbermound retorted. Care to tell the audience what you hear when I describe liquid dihydrogen monoxide as water? Amunda, why? Amunda is your cradle planet's name. You come from planet water. Go suck rot, dirtling. Swim off some blubber. Modresser, deftly muted in glorious traveler, the very instant he began to screech in incoherent rage and flail his flabby fins around in a vain attempt to physically assault Dr. Fujika. Chat mocked him without mercy. Once again showing that she isn't an idiot, unbreakable carapace interjected, Before you pointed out, Bifna might translate to the word for insect nest in your language, since it can also be used that way in mine. However, when referring to our cradle world, the word is deeper just as Earth is for you, Dr. Fijiko. Thank you, unbreakable carapace. That's the main point I've been trying to get across. We didn't name our planet the way we did because we're the only spacefaring race to be actually stupid. It was a logical name for the first planet that we ever knew of, and named before we even knew what a planet was. Just like everybody else, Madressa interjected hoping to end the debate before Dr. Fujika could go in for the cradle planet name Killshot, his own Eo, which he had realized to his horror translates to place in most languages. Would you be amendable to return to discuss the flow rider man's phenomenon at a later date, Dr. Matthew Fujika? I read your paper on the subject, and to be frank, I'm eager to respond to it amongst a more scientific panel. He replied with a smug grin that seemed to lord over the entire galaxy with humanity's latest victory.
End of story. The Day the War Was Won, written by Farmwitch4275. My sergeant barked orders at us as we desperately held the line. The six-legged swarm approached us. I held my plasma rifle in my hands, barely holding on to it as I was shaking too much. I carefully peered over the edge of the barricade that we had set up, and my heart started racing again as I saw the mountain of enemies approaching. Small insectoids, the biters as we called them, by the thousands. Sure, our artillery could kill swaths of them in one go, but there were always thousands more. They all scurried along the ground, plasma bolts impacting into groups of them. For every ten we killed, fifty more would take it their place. They moved as one group, scurrying across the ground in waves of scaly, scuttering flesh. Plasma rifles discharging heat bolts towards the scurrying groups, killing dozens with one detonation. Keep at it, brothers! I got word we got reinforcements. Our sergeant barked at us, followed by a mild cheer enthusiasm from the men. Praetorian! One guy screamed as the larger blade and appendage creatures suddenly appeared. It charged at us, using the smaller, scuttering creatures as a shield. The few plasma bolts we were able to get thrown in its direction did little more than to kill a few hundred scurrying swarmers. This is how the lines always fell. The swarms would force us to overheat our plasma pistols or laser rifles with a charge from the smaller ones. The bigger ones would use this to crawl closer to the line, then charge at us with the swarm. Plasma weapons wouldn't fire fast enough, so we would simply retreat, let the line fall, and hope. I stood up. I aimed my weapon and fired. It did nothing to the beast as it charged our battle line. We heard that the position was failing. We had to evacuate. I was frozen in fear. I couldn't do anything except aim my weapon and shoot. Within minutes, we would all be dead either from the artillery strikes needed to cleanse this position, or from the Praetorian who would carve us up and feed us to the swarm. I looked dead into its eyes. Suddenly, a firestorm of explosions, loud cracks, and multiple shots. I watched, almost as if the world was in slow motion, as a thousand projectiles flew through the air, shredding through both the Swarmlings and Praetorian. A few of these projectiles simply cracked the creature's armor, others deflected off the chitin as they passed through the smaller Swarmlings. The sheer volume of these projectiles ensured the Praetorian died quickly. The rest of the swarmlings died quickly as well. A few larger, bulkier projectiles thrown into the mass of chitin and legs exploding with enough force to render hundreds at a time into march. We snapped back to our senses as an aircraft burst into view, hastily pulling up and barely coming 50 feet off the ground at high speed. It had insignias we never saw before, guns we never saw before, engines we never saw before. It flew less like a craft and more like a bird of prey. We watched in sheer amazement as ten more flew into view, diving to the ground, unleashing a storm of metal into a swarm, followed by a mass of dozens of chemical rockets. Within minutes, minutes, a battle that had lasted nearly two months was over. We watched the craft overhead go beyond the battle line and slaughter a legion of swarm. So busy watching the display of mass death, we failed to notice our reinforcements had arrived. A loud crack of thunder in extremely close proximity, followed by a Praetorian's head exploding, directed us to the small form of a new creature, the Short Ones. 
none of us had seen it before. The trench we were in was now covered in them, one standing with their long rifle, taking precise shots at distances too far to be real, and scoring a kill on nearly every shot. Two more were near some kind of mounted weapon, one holding a belt of vicious-looking projectiles, the other manning the gun itself. Three more standing atop a ruined wall, holding atop their shoulders some kind of big tube device. They were half our size, two legs, two arms, five fingers as opposed to our four. Their faces were flat, stubby, two eyes with a variety of colors and skin tones. The uniforms are covered in segmented armor plating, like strange hardened ceramic. Some wore special goggles on their faces, covering their eyes. I could see some kind of words and information displayed on it. We stood bewildered at the sudden appearance of a clearly military-focused, highly advanced species suddenly appearing and saving our lives. One of them stood in front of me and snapped his fingers in front of my face to call my attention. He made some gestures with his tiny hands. He pointed to his rifle and a strange black metal machine that had a belt of some kind loaded with ammunition. He made the gesture of something like small. Then he pointed to my plasma rifle and made the gesture of something big. I stood still, considering what was going on. My keen eye then spotted the craft from before retreating, followed by a massive dust cloud on the horizon. The creature in front of me, the short one, as we called them, repeated his series of motions. I suddenly got the idea. Our plasma weapons against the Praetorians and Centurions, the big ones, and their guns against the Swarmlings. I pointed at my plasma rifle and then pointed at the shattered corpse of a Praetorian nearby. Then I pointed at the gun in his hands, then pointed at the body of a Swarmling nearby. He tilted his head up and down in a nod, his face contorting into what was clearly a smile. I whistled loudly, snapping my trench line out of the dumbfounded stupor. Reform the line! Within seconds, my brethren had reformed their stations, weapons at the ready. Focus, fire, and the large targets only. Let the short ones handle the swarms, I bellowed out. I readied my rifle. The short ones in the trench line readied their weapons with a series of mechanical clicks. We readied our weapons, the sound of powering our power cells filling the air. The short one in front of me made more gestures with its hand and pointed at a craft flying overhead, then pointed at a timepiece on his arm and then made the gesture it indicated the number was one and seven. He did it again, slower and clearer, so I could properly register it. I looked at the ticking clock. The time scale he used was roughly the same as ours. The aircraft will rearm. Time to response is seventeen vintas. Hold the line! I barked loudly at the trench line. My sergeants and captains had finally regained their composure. Before long, they had caught on to the strategy and began barking orders into our radios spreading the news to the trench line. The swarm apparently got in range of the trench line, and a loud noise of a cannon fire descended onto the valley. The short ones in front of me opened fire with prejudice, and it appeared as though a river of metal suddenly appeared in the sky. I could see thousands of swarmlings, big and small, suddenly drop dead or fall to their advance as a hail of ammunition tore off limbs. The humans holding the tubes yelled something, looking behind them, then they fired a loud thud noise signifying that they had fired, followed by the projectiles they launched exploding directly in the face of the swarm. Hundreds of the swarm died instantly. Pieces of chitinous monsters shattered in every direction. Some pieces of chitin had shattered at speed, incapacitating more enemies than the sheer shrapnel. The short ones holding the large guns occasionally fired, 
taking any opportunity to hit Praetorians that they can actually see. Some actually scored some decent hits. The swarm charged us with force, despite the unending storm of metal. There are still tens of thousands to consider. But here, we notice something. Clearly the short ones did too. Every time one of them kills a Praetorian with a good shot, they yell out something, and the others notice, redirect their fire. The Praetorian is killed, the swarm falls back. We hadn't noticed this behavior before. Normally they would be right on top of us, so we couldn't really tell if it happened. One Praetorian gets close, then the others when we get in range. Our plasma rifles fire focus volley at it. It hits. It disintegrates into a puddle of discombobulated goo. The swarm he was leading retreats. A new pattern emerges. The sergeants know this. The short ones know this. The word travels quickly, and before long, we implemented a strategy we only now had the chance to do. For the first time in 600 years, the tide was turning. We were told to hold the line, and hold the line we did. The swarm never stopped, and neither did we. The aircraft swooped in and wiped out the nest. The hive mind severed. The swarm began to disintegrate. The swarmlings stopping dead in their tracks as the connection severed, either going insane, screeching with rage or pain, and either waiting around before dying or slaughtering each other. The few Praetorians and Centurions left alive were dealt a fast death blow by the short ones. The first hive mindly killed in over 480 years. The planet was saved. We rejoiced. The short ones were somewhat surprised at our sudden victory vocalizations. More chants and jumps for joy startled them as the swarm died off. The short ones apparently weren't done, or they knew something we didn't. Most of them moved forward and walked into the mass of chitinous bodies, putting a few rounds into any remaining squirmers. The short ones from before plus a few others stayed behind, keeping guard as we celebrated our first victory in centuries. The very same short one approached me and pushed a button on his helmet. He spoke in Serenai. It was broken, somewhat childish, but it was at least coherent enough that we could speak. Understand me, me talk, you hear, he said, his translator, very clearly only just starting to function. Yes, I do. Who are you? I asked. Corporal Withers, army human, he replied, pointing to himself. Well, he said more than that, but uh, like I explained, the translation software wasn't all that good yet. Probably wasn't more than a few weeks old, to be honest. He reached a hand out to me. Mine was twice as big as his. I took it, and he shook it, just like we did. Our celebration was cut short by the arrival of some war machines these humans used. Pallets of supplies, both medical and martial, arrived in force. We had no time to celebrate. We had work to do. Finally happened. Six months after that first battle, we were winning. A stalemate that lasted a thousand years. Finally broken. The horde was being driven back at long last, all because of them. It's not to say the humans did not endure grievous casualties, just like us, but it was because of them we actually had victories, real victories, victories that allowed us to take lost planets back. Before humanity arrived, the only victories we had, we would think them to be hollow. We could easily secure space. The horde's ships were almost worthless against our weaponry. But when it came to ground combat, we would always be pushed back. Their numbers were superior to our tech. Plasma rifles and gauss cannons can only go so far when you have three targets, and you can only kill one. Human weaponry turned the tide. 
The sheer volume of fire coming from their primitive weapons culled the hall to its barest minimum. When we were finally able to communicate face-to-face -face via translator systems, or with us simply learning our languages, that was when it really turned. The humans would focus their firestorm of ballistic and kinetic weapons against the vast numbers of the horde. We would hold our fire and focus on the bigger targets. It was a strategy that worked beautifully, and within a short time, we had taken back one of our colony worlds. The horde had no other motivation than to feed and breed. It was just a horde. Nothing more. We'd been fighting it for over a thousand years. Hollow victories of us destroying higher fleets in space with ease. Only to realize we missed maybe one or two spore pods. A desperate fight for survival, ending either in evacuation and retreat while we watch the world be consumed, or retreat to bad pastures while we leave the colony to fight for itself. Hollow victories of either evacuating an entire world while millions die on the front lines to hold back the tide for just a few minutes longer. Families going on to transports watching their fathers and sons die in a battle they couldn't win. Or watching the faces of a few on the ground sink in despair as the fleet disappeared in the skies. The tide turned and we fought harder than ever before. Humans landed on a colony world about to be invaded. Six hundred men stood alone against an unending tide, just to guard a few stragglers that failed to evacuate in time. Their sacrifice inspired us to take our first real push into Horde territory. And within a year, with massive casualties, we managed to take back a colony world we lost decades prior. Humanity was somewhat dismayed at our staggering losses, and from that point forward, insisted we fight alongside them. The Horde has millions of planets, infested countless worlds, but we will, with the help of our new friends, we will wipe them out. End of story. I would like to thank the T5 peeps, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster177, Leslie 517, Red Panda 121, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Lightjock, Dragzoon WRE, Lord Azrakal, Severin Cerberus, and Arcalian. Thank you very much.